0: So I just appreciate his friendship and not only his uh, desire to bring God's word to you, but how he struggles with it to bring his bring the word and bring his best to you guys. Let me pray for you. you. Father, I just lift up Kyle and I just uh, pray that you give him confidence and and reassurance that the the word he has is from you and and that it's for us. And uh, I just uh, thank you for his friendship and how he challenges me and challenges all of us in your name. I pray. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. As always, it's good to be here with all of you today as we get through a week where spring and winter seem to be fighting with each other to figure out who's going to take over. But uh, it's good to be here together. And this week was Valentine's Day. And uh, for those of us who are lucky enough to remember, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Valentine's Day is unique because of the gift That we give those that we love. It's what makes the gift special is the relationship that we have with each other. The relationship that you have with that person, the love that exists within it. If you were to take a flower and give it to your wife, she would have an appreciation for it. And there would be an understanding that it was given because of the love that you have for each other. And if you were to take that and give it to an absolute stranger on the street, they would uh, give you a weird look. They might accept it, but be puzzled. They wouldn't know what to do with it. And it's the reason why the relationship exists and the love within it that makes the difference on the perception of the gift being given. And so I'd like for us to kind of keep that in our minds as we study John chapter six together and we see Jesus teaching to the crowd. So turn to John chapter six. And we're going to be studying 6 and part of 7 and part of 8, but John chapter 6, and since uh, since I ended halfway through 6 and Forrest went on into 7 and Dwayne went on into 8, since we're going back to 6, we're going to kind of recount the events of the chapter so far, kind of review what all has gone on. So if you will turn to 6, and as I review this, I'll be telling you uh, different verses to reference so you can kind of Follow along and see what we're talking about as we build up to where we're going to start today, which is verse 51. Now, to recount the events, remember that John chapter 6 begins by Jesus feeding the 5,000, and this is the fourth sign of seven signs in the Gospel of John that Jesus gives about who he is. And remember that during this time, a crowd comes to see Jesus. And they are seeking him because they have heard of the miracles that he has done and the works that he has done. And they want to be a part of it. And so while they're there and Jesus is speaking with them, it uh, begins to become evening and it's mealtime. And Jesus is wanting to feed them. And there's not enough money to go and get food. And Andrew and Andrew and Philip are kind of struggling with what to do in this. And so they find a boy with five barley loaves and two fish. And so they gather that, and Jesus multiplies this in a display of of power and creation and a sign of who he is and feeds the thousands of people that were there. And then we talked about how afterwards the disciples took off, and Jesus disappeared and went into the mountain, and the disciples took off, and they sailed across the sea. And during the night, they were caught in a storm, which caused them to be stuck. And while they were there, they eventually saw... Jesus walking on the water towards them. Now, we said that the reason why this happened with the disciples is explained to us in Mark 6.52. It is because the disciples missed the sign of Jesus at the feeding of the loaves. 6.52 in Mark states that, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. So in this moment, in this storm, as they see Jesus walking across the water, we said that this is a reference back to Genesis one, two, because what they're seeing is I am hovering over the waters of chaos. Just as in Genesis one, two, you see the spirit of God hovering over the waters and they immediately recognize that. And so they fell and they worshiped him. And then the next day, some of the five thousand, they take off and they go to seek him again where he is teaching And we see that they find him. And in verse 26 of chapter 6, Jesus rebukes them because of the reason why they were seeking after him. He states that you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're seeking me because of what you can get out of this, not because you desire a relationship with me. And so he begins teaching and continues on. And in verse 31 we see that the people state that they want to sign and they bring up manna that their ancestors had in the wilderness, and so this kind of continues the theme of bread, right? He uses loaves to feed them, and then <clears throat> they refer to manna as they seek after him for bread, and then he refers to himself as the bread of life. So there's this theme that continues throughout the chapter with bread. Now when they mention manna Jesus begins teaching them and states to remember that manna was from heaven. Manna was not from Moses, but it was from the Father. That which sustains life comes from the Father. And that's an important part. That is something that Jesus is going to continue to repeat and teach them as we read to the section today that we're going to. And in verse 33, we see that he states that, "...for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven." and gives life to the world manna sustained life in israel in the wilderness but he is that which sustains life eternally and we see that in verse 41 of chapter 6 the jews in the crowd are seemingly having a difficult time with this they're not understanding how to process this because he says that he is coming from above and he has been sent by the father now their initial difficulties were not because he was saying that he is life and he is a source of life. It is because he was saying that he is from above. He is coming from the father. And in verse 42, they state that we know his father. His father is Joseph. So what is he talking about? And they struggle with that. But Christ continues to press on. And then you come to verse 46 in chapter 6. And you'll read that Christ tells them, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So if he is from the Father, he is the bread from heaven, then he is the only one to have seen him. Therefore, he is declaring that he is the eternal being. He is from the Father's side. And he continues teaching, He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna and died. But this, referring to himself, is the bread which comes so that one may eat of it and not die. And so, after we we see all of this, and this is now fresh in our minds, what all is going on in this chapter, we now enter into verses 51 through 63, and what many call some of the most confusing verses in all of the Gospels. And you have to ask yourself when you see this, is it confusing due to what's being said? Or because of how it is being said is the way that he is explaining this. What catches us off guard as Jesus begins to teach that they should eat his flesh and drink his blood. And so if you haven't already turned to John six, we're going to be reading fifty one through sixty three. John six, fifty one through sixty three. Verse fifty one. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. What can, <clears throat> who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious of his disciples, grumbling at this, said to them, Did this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Now, our first reaction when we hear this is much like the crowd has. We're kind of sitting there listening to this, thinking to ourselves, what in the world do we do with this? What is he expressing to me right now? What is he trying to say? And you can see from their reaction that's recorded, they were puzzled with this as well. And verse 52, it states that they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're, they're totally confused by this. And we were talking a few weeks before about how this is a metaphor that Jesus is using. And yet because of where their relationship is with him, they're missing what he is saying some things to pick up on and some things that we think they would have picked up on would, he tells them that the bread your fathers ate came from heaven, yet they died. But this bread will cause you to live forever. So clearly there's a difference in the breads being spoken about here, right? One was sustaining life on earth and the other was removing death. And you think that that would have caught their attention ...to where they would have asked more questions about this. What are you referring to? But instead, they couldn't get past the statement. Just as Nicodemus was stuck on the issue of being born again... ...and he couldn't comprehend and get past that... ...so the crowd here is stuck on eating the flesh and drinking the blood. Now, probably part of this is stemming from the culture that they had at the time. Many of these men would have been at least somewhat familiar with... (coughs) with levitical law and the laws of moses and so they were probably recalling the laws that they had been taught or memorized and learned as they were growing up and so you think about leviticus 17:14, where it states that life of all flesh its blood is identified with its life therefore i said to the sons of israel you are not to eat the blood of any flesh for the life of all flesh is in its blood whoever eats it shall be cut off. So whoever ingests this blood and the sacrifice will be cut off. And in Deuteronomy twelve sixteen, he it states that you shall not eat the blood you are to pour it out on the ground like water. And this is coming to them after he states in Matthew 5 that do you not think that I have come to abolish the law, the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if he is coming to fulfill the law, Why is what he's telling us right now seemingly going against the law of Moses? What is happening now? And so you can understand why this would be puzzling to them. But the whole issue here is that they were thinking physically. They were thinking temporarily, not spiritually, and not eternally. They could not get past the physical action of the eating and the drinking. And the laws that they were recalling from the laws of Moses were about physical sacrifices and physical rituals and steps that needed to be performed. They were not thinking in the realm of the spirit, which Christ tells us he is speaking in. Now, I kind of recorded this thought, that. Hopefully, it comes out better than just trying to recall it. But if you look, most of chapter 6 pointed to the fact that people were seeking Jesus for physical needs or for what it could get them. So when Jesus begins speaking to them about a bread to eat that would allow you to live forever, they were lost. Because they weren't thinking eternal. When we hear and think physically, we too are troubled by this statement and ask ourselves, what in the world is he talking about? But when we think eternally or spiritually, we just automatically seem to know that, oh, he's speaking about his death and eternal life and our acceptance of his sacrifice for us. And this is a very crucial point for us to understand. One's relationship with Christ is the determining factor of rather or not his words are offensive to us. These Jews and these people in this crowd, they heard this. And it was offensive to them, and they abandoned him and went away. And yet Peter, and the love that he had for Christ, after hearing this and being asked if he will walk away, he tells him, Lord, to whom shall we go? In your words, you have words of eternal life. Now we know that this is spiritual and eternal, which Christ is referencing, because in verse 63, if you look, it says, that it is the spirit who gives life, the the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So him coming from above and us accepting his sacrifice of flesh and blood, that is what gives us eternal life. It goes beyond believing in him to a point where we believe in him and accept his sacrifice he has given us. And you can see that in this in this section that we are reading Christ is pointing to the cross in this. The crowd is talking to him about how this is a difficult statement and in verse 61 he asked them, "Does this cause you to stumble? Does the thought of my death cause you to stumble?" And it's at this point that we know that it was because we know that The Jewish Messiah to them was supposed to be a conqueror. He was supposed to be one that would raise them up. They had an idea of what he was. He was not to die. And John MacArthur states that in this moment, if you reflect on the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. So his death, His flesh, his blood was not being accepted by them. They were struggling with his words because their mind and their hearts were not right. They could not accept that one such as him was to die. Now we said... Many months ago when we started the Gospel of John that there were themes that we would see as we went through the Gospel that would continue to gain momentum or get repeated over and over, or snowball effect, I guess is what we called it. And if you think about the ones we're reading here and you reflect back on John chapter 1, you could see many of the things that John started out explaining to us about Christ coming to fruition in the verses that we had read. So you think about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So here we have an eternal being, one who is from the father. The bread of life was from the father. We think about his flesh and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see in chapter one, it states that in him was life and life was the light of mankind. And you continue to see all these themes. And so if you were to paraphrase them and put them together, you would see chapter one. John telling us that in the beginning was the word. The word became flesh and in him was life. And now you read what Christ is teaching the people. And he says that I am from the father. I have seen the father. I am here in the flesh and my flesh will give life. This is literally John one being repeated. This is why John told us this initially so that as we got closer to the cross and Christ was continuing in his ministry, teaching more in depth we would have an understanding of what we were hearing. And one point to notice is that, yes, the themes will continue to to gain momentum, but it's not just the themes, it's his teachings too. Specifically, his teachings about the cross, his death and his resurrection. The closer we get to the cross, the more we see Jesus address his death. So in John chapter 1:29 to go back to John 1, you see John the Baptist declaring as Christ walks by, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, sacrifice who will take away the sins of the world. And in John 3:14 before Jesus says John 3:16, he begins by stating and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And now here we are in six talking about his flesh and his blood and how that will give us eternal life. And the theme continues. And to kind of emphasize this even more, if you'll turn with me to John chapter eight, John chapter eight, we're going to leapfrog over there and we'll be reading verse twenty eight. But as we go there, also reflect on what was happening in the beginning of John eight, which Dwayne was teaching us about. We see Jesus saying, you are of this world. I am not of this world. And speaking about how he knows where he came from and where he is going, but you don't. So we have the section that we just studied in six that's referring to the cross. And the verse we're going to read in eight that's referring to the cross. And sandwiched in the middle, we have chapter seven and what Forrest spoke to us about, about how simply being religious does not make us a Christian. And then we have the teaching that Dwayne taught us last week about how he is the light of the world and how these people were going to be separated from him because he was going away. And he explained to us that that, in a way, is a definition of hell, knowing that you need him and being unable to find him. And so we see those sandwiched in the middle of these teachings. And if you haven't already, turn to 8. We're going to read verse 28. John eight twenty eight. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. It has been, and it will always be, ...about the cross. His death and resurrection is what saves. And our faith in his death and resurrection is what saves us. It goes beyond acknowledging that he was a man that spoke... ...or that he was a wise teacher. Anyone will grant you that. It goes to the cross of Christ and his resurrection. And to kind of emphasize this point that... ...the name of Jesus is not foreign among the minds of men... ...if you'd like, uh, there's a Christian apologist named Jay Warner Wallace, and he has a website called coldcasechristianity.com. And there's an article there where he writes, Who is Jesus according to other religions? Who is Jesus according to other religions? Now, if you would like to grant atheism as a religion, which you could argue back and forth with, you would state that atheist historians will grant you that he existed. Jews will grant that he was a wise teacher, a miracle worker, Claimed to be a messiah and even respected. But then when it comes to the cross, he was crucified and his followers stole his body so that they could lie about his ascension. Muslims will grant that he was born of a virgin. He was a prophet. He was a wise teacher. They will even grant that Jesus will be with Allah during the time of judgment. But he wasn't crucified. The cross was simply an illusion that he did to trick the people. Hinduism states that Jesus is a God, one of many, and that while he was here incarnate, he was simply a holy man. And Buddhism states that Jesus was a man who had reached enlightenment. All religions and all worldviews, his name is known and belief in him exists. Yet it is what you do With his death and the cross and his resurrection that makes the difference between you being a person who believes that Christ existed and a Christian. And for an example of this, I have a friend that studies the word and anytime there is difficulties in his life, he goes to the word. And I have seen him argue with people about Christianity and the truth in it. And so seemingly he would be a Christian. Yet I've asked him what he thinks about the cross, and he states that the cross never happened because it's impossible for resurrection. It was simply a metaphor on how we're to lay our lives down for people. And the children of Israel never existed. It's simply a metaphor for us to understand how God interacts with mankind. And so I sit, and you see that, and you ask, is he a Christian? And the answer is no. You cannot sit and... Explain away the cross of jesus christ and then claim that you are saved by him There is no way for that to happen When you read 828 and you see as we read together Then you will know It makes me think of some of the followers of christ. It makes me think of peter Following him the love he showed for him and then denying him at the time of the trial But after the resurrection, never denying him again. And we think of Thomas or doubting Thomas, following him and then fleeing as the as the herd scattered at the time of the trial. And then even after he was told about it, he still didn't believe in the resurrection until he saw the scars and felt the holes. And then he never doubted again. Even if you think of the centurion. Seeing all the events after Christ's death and then declaring, surely he was the son of God. It is the cross that makes the difference in who we are. And in conclusion, John MacArthur states that he was the lamb. We don't worship a divine teacher, but rather he was God in human flesh. We also worship him as the sacrifice for our sins who died in our place. We have to eat his flesh for nourishment of the soul and drink his blood in the sense of accepting his death. And if someone were to ask us or were to ask you, why are you here today? What would your answer be? Would you simply state to worship God because I believe in Jesus, to worship with others or. To worship Christ. To worship Christ because he has saved me from my sins by dying on the cross and taking the punishment that I earned. And it makes me think of the song that we sing sometimes. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of God and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Belief in his existence is not enough. It is belief in the sacrifice of his flesh that saves us. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We ask, Lord, that you watch over the congregation as we go through this week. We pray that you put each other on each other's hearts and minds, that we pray for each other and lift each other up. Lord, for those of us that claim you in name only, and we haven't really dealt with how we look at the cross, and if we truly believe, and the resurrection, I pray that your spirit come upon us and that we, they seek after you, Lord. I pray that you reveal yourself to them as the week goes on, and that they have the courage and strength to reach out to those in this congregation for help and for guidance. I thank you for all your blessings, Lord. And I pray that you continue to guide us. Amen.